welcome to Novel Thoughts, a weekly book chat podcast hosted by me, Sapphire Bates. And me, Joseph Dance. This is the podcast for the big readers and the book lovers. Hello, Joseph. How are you? I'm very good, Sapphire. How are you? I am really good. I want to get your thoughts, if that's okay, before we dive into our main chat today. Yep. What do you think of the Women's Prize for Nonfiction? It's a new prize and the long list was announced just last week, I think, on the 15th. Yeah, last Thursday, Friday. Mm -hmm. I think I saw it come out. It was all over social media. It's always very exciting when a new prize rolls into town. And I think this one's particularly overdue. I mean, we do have other prizes for nonfiction in the UK that have been going for a while, like the Bailey Gifford, which I think started not long after the Women's Prize for Fiction. But we've not had anything that specifically celebrates the achievements of women writers who write nonfiction. So I'm, I'm pretty happy to see this finally get off the ground. Yeah, I'm a bit mystified by that. Like you say, it's long overdue. Why mm. haven't we had this before? Well, anyway, it's here now. It's here. And, and what are your thoughts on it? I'm still making my way through the long list. But from first glance, it looks like quite an interesting mix of memoir, political writing, nature writing and history. I'm, I'm glad they've got a mix of genres there. I have read Patricia Evangelista's Some People Need Killing, a memoir of murder in my country. Have you, have you heard of this? Have you read this? Not read it, but I have heard of it. Okay, shall I tell you a bit about it? Yes, please. So she's a crime investigative reporter in the Philippines. And for this book, she spent, I think it was about six years following Rodrigo Duterte, apologies on the pronunciation, who was the president then in the Philippines, and his war on drugs, which was like his big social and political project that he introduced when he was elected back in 2016. She tells the story about his war on drugs, which was, it led to a massive spike in extrajudicial killings. And the people who were being murdered were people involved in the drugs trade. And these weren't just carried out by the police, these killings. They were also carried out by regular citizens who Duterte had whipped into almost like a frenzy with all his TV and radio speeches. I mean, it's quite sinister. He used to go on the news in the Philippines like every day, but not just the news. He used to go on chat shows and even kids programs and game shows. Wow. I know, it's bizarre. Anyway, he would go on these programs and encourage people to become vigilantes and take the law into their own hands. And as you can imagine, with him constantly drip-feeding everyone the instruction to kill addicts and drug dealers, things got really chaotic in, in the Philippines. And a lot of innocent people ended up, well, being killed. And Patricia's book is this really powerful, nightmarish picture of the Philippines as it kind of descends into this, you know, it circles the drain. Like, it's like a collective insanity. It's an incredible book. I mean, there are some really shocking scenes in this one. And Evangelita's interviews with the people who carried out these killings are often really chilling. So she says that the vast majority of the people she interviewed didn't think that they'd actually done anything wrong. And in fact, the title comes from an interview she did with a man who had killed a number of people. And when she spoke to him about this, he just kept saying, I'm not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. Some people just need killing. Which is like, imagine being in that mindset. I mean, that's insane, isn't it? It is. And I think I'm really glad it's on the long list because I think as a work of journalism and political commentary, it's a hugely important book. And Evangelista, as the author of this book, has clearly taken a lot of risks in writing it. So I wouldn't be surprised if the jury recognises that and she wins this year. I think she deserves to. I've heard so much hype about this book. I think I saw a headline from an interview with her which said something like she was investigating 20 to 30 deaths per day when this was all going on. Yeah, it's crazy. Such a crazy number and, and 
I was going to say it's such an insane story, but it's it's not even just a story because this this actually happened. It sounds like a really difficult read, but I, I really do want to read it. Yeah, I'd say give it a go. It is a difficult read. I'm not very good with violence in fiction or, or non-fiction, but it's an important book, so I'm glad it's there. Another book I'd like to read is Intervals by Marion Brooker. Have you heard of this one? No. Okay, so this is her first book, I think, and before publishing Intervals, she was the editor for a climate justice journal or website, one of the two, called The Ecologist. Mm -hmm. So this represents a bit of a change for her from, from what I can see. So this is a memoir. It starts in 2009 and it effectively documents her mother's diagnosis and eventual death from multiple sclerosis. I think like so many books on the long list, it's a bit of a hybrid. So there's a bit of memoir, there's a bit of polemic, and there's a bit of feminist philosophy. And I was just thinking back on the last episode, we talked quite a lot about medical and illness memoirs, mm -hmm. which is not a genre I'm massively familiar with, but I definitely like to explore more. So this piqued my interest. Plus, this is a Fitzgeraldo White edition, which you'll be pleased to hear. <laughs> and it's really nice to see, I know they stain, but it's really nice to see a book from them on the long list. And in fact, there's lots of titles from smaller publishers, which is really good. Saf, what grabbed your interest from the long list? Okay, one book on the long list I'd like to read is Doppelganger by Naomi Klein. I feel like this book has been everywhere since it came out last year and we've had it in the bookshop and it's sold very well. And it just looks really interesting to me. Mm. So from all the press I've read, it starts with Klein talking about being mistaken for Naomi Wolf, who's another writer. Wolf started out as quite a liberal feminist author. She published The Beauty Myth in the early 90s. Yep. But she gradually, well, in the last couple of years at least, she started getting involved in COVID denialism and conspiracy theories. And it looks like she's turned more towards right-wing politics. I've seen quite a lot of this online. Yep. Yeah. So Klein uses a starting point of mistaken identity, the doppelganger in the title, to look at why Naomi Wolf might have taken the path that she has, mm. what happened to her to make her change so much, and she goes on to look more broadly at conspiracy theories and anti-vaxxers mm. and why more and more wellness influencers have started pushing conspiracy theories, which is interesting. Mm. I don't know if you've come across this in the news or on Instagram, but there's this really weird and kind of worrying corner of the internet where people go from being like a smiley wellness influencer one day, you know, chatting about whole foods and yoga to posting kind of right-wing content every day and some quite questionable content. That's really bizarre. I haven't come across that. Mm, I just think this is a really timely book with all the discussion that we're having about populism and deep fakes and mm. information wars. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it and getting more educated on the issue. That sounds really fascinating. And like you, it is a book I've heard a lot about. I haven't really read as deeply as you have into it. I've been a fan of her writing for a long time, so I'm surprised I haven't read this yet. Just on the subject of the spread of conspiracy theories... I read this article, I think it was in Time magazine last year, which was utterly bonkers. It said that a recent study published in an American medical journal found that four in ten people thought vaccinating their dogs against rabies could cause the dogs to get autism. I mean, what do you say to that? I mean, dogs, dogs can't get autism, at least not that we're aware of. So I just, I don't I don't, I don't think you can refer your dog for an autism no. diagnosis, can you? I don't think so. Okay, one to look up anyway. I don't know why I'm looking at James as though he might have the answer. <laughs> that just popped into my head as you were talking about Naomi Klein. What else do you like the look of on the list? So another book that caught my attention is How to Say Babylon by Safia Sinclair. Okay. Which is also a memoir. 
and it focuses on Sinclair's experiences of growing up in Jamaica. Mainly, I think it talks about the really strained relationship she had, or she has, I think he's still alive, with her father, who is a reggae musician. Mm. And he's also a member of a sect of the Rastafari religion and has some very outdated ideas about what women should and shouldn't be allowed to do. So from a psychology and a family relationships perspective, I thought this might be something I'd enjoy reading. Plus, I read a lot of memoirs. You do. I do. But I haven't read many set in Jamaica. In fact, I'm struggling to think if I've read any that were set specifically in Jamaica. So I quite like the idea of exploring a new culture and a society and someone's experiences. Yeah, I want to read more nonfiction and fiction set in Jamaica. Did you know Safia Sinclair is also a poet? I did, but I've not read her work. Okay, I'm going to be cheeky and say this might be a way of sneaking a bit of poetic prose into your reading diet. You know, like parents whiz up broccoli and courgette in the blender and then put it in a spaghetti bolognese <laughs> so the children eat more vegetables. I'm not saying yeah. you're a toddler. <laughs> Anyway, I really enjoyed her second collection of poetry, Cannibal, which came out a few years back now, and it was really good. So I'd recommend listeners check that out if they're interested. Can I mention another book? Go on then. I've got an honourable mention. I always have an honourable mention. Okay, so I'm really interested to read Wifedom by Anna Funder. Have you heard about this one? Yes. Okay, so this is out on the 3rd of March, so not long to wait now. And it tells the story of Eileen Blair, or rather Eileen O'Shaughnessy, as she was known under her maiden name, who was the first wife of George Orwell, who he was married to for, I think it was nine years until she died in, in the 40s at some point. I read another biography of Eileen by Sylvia Topp a few years back, and that one was called Eileen, The Making of George Orwell. Have you heard of that? No. Okay. So kind of like, as the title suggests, it argued that Eileen had quite a big influence on Orwell's writing. Apparently, she convinced him to write Animal Farm as a fable rather than a long poem, which I thought was quite interesting. And it also alleged that Orwell used some of her ideas to inform the plot of 1984. Eileen wrote lots of poems as a youngster and a teenager, and she wrote a couple of long poems about police states and mind control, which are spookily similar to the plot of 1984. I'm really interested to see how Anna Funder tells Eileen's story, given that we've recently had a biography about her, and I guess whether she has any new source material to draw from. Do you know what this reminds me of? I do want to read it. It just made me think, and I just pulled it off my bookshelf. Yeah, The what Wife by Meg Willitzer. Oh, and what made you think of The Wife? The Wife is about a writer and his wife. And there's some similar themes in the idea of being influenced by or being helped with some writing. There was um, a film adaptation of this book with Glenn Close playing the wife. Yes. Okay. I've seen the film. I've not read the book. The book's really good. Just mm. as a side note. Yeah. No, that's a good shout out. Just before we move on, can I flag one other thing? Go on then. Which is, let's see if the psychic link is working. What am I going to say? It's not working. No. I'm going to say, <laughs> where are all the graphic novels in this long list? Why isn't there at least one graphic novel? I just feel like graphic novels can blend memoir, history, political writing, and they can do it as, as well as a written book. And I just don't understand why we are not putting graphic novels on awards lists, like the Women's Prize for Nonfiction. Yeah, I mean, I don't read a lot myself, but I do think there's still a lot of like snobbishness around the idea of graphic novels, especially in the English-speaking publishing world, where they're 100%. often just seen as, as comic books, yeah. essentially. Yeah, I mean, they have seen a enormous growth in places like France and Germany who've got a tradition of 
comics and Bon Dessiné and things like that. But I, yeah, I guess we're just snobs here. Also, I was looking at the criteria for the prize and any book that enters has to be over 30,000 words. And I'm wondering whether graphic novels don't have that many words. So it might be a technical thing. Yeah, I think that could definitely be a part of it. Yeah. Once again, loads more books added to our TBR piles. Shall we move on? Yes, let's move on. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about new releases for March. There are some really great books coming out this month, so we thought we would give you the rundown on our top picks. And as a bookseller, I sort of feel like March releases come just before awards season gets up and running, and sometimes these books can get lost in the fray. Definitely. Joseph, what is your first pick? Okay, the first new release that I would highly recommend to listeners, and I mean highly recommend, this is the best book I've read in the last five years, is Clear by the Welsh author Caris Davies. Clear comes out on the 7th of March and is Davies' sixth book. She's a really interesting writer who I have been following since she published her first collection of short stories, Some New Ambush, I think it was called, back in 2007 or the late 2000s. And I really enjoyed her debut novel, West. Have you heard of that one? No. Okay, this was shortlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize in 2020. And I think I came across West listening to the BBC podcast, A Good Read. Anyway, Davies' novels are usually quite short and are often set in desolate or out-of-the-way locations. And she seems to be really interested in how people respond to a particular historical event or moment. And Clear certainly, I think, taps into both of those ideas. So, a bit of a history lesson. Are you ready for some context? I am. Let's go. The book is set in 1843. I should say, I feel like I need to give this context so you get the full effect. Okay. I'm not just lecturing you. (laughs) So, the book is set in 1843 during the Highland Clearances, which was this really nasty period in Scottish history when landowners in Scotland were going through a brutal process of removing their tenant farmers from their estates to make way for grazing sheep, which they thought would make them more money. And it was all a bit of a swizz because after being evicted, these farmers who'd been displaced and quite often their families were given small patches of like coast for fishing or they're giving small patches or plots of land um, somewhere else for farming but the soil quality was really bad or they were just really poorly located so they didn't catch any fish. And what ended up happening was the farmers would try and grow crops, the harvest would fail, they would get desperate and then, like vultures, the landowners would swoop back in and say, hey, do you want to come and work for us as cheap seasonal labour? So it was just all a way of creating a very cheap dependent workforce. That's so shocking. I mean, we don't really hear about this kind of history when we're at school. And even... Like popular TV history programs, they're all about like kings and queens or the Romans. But there's not a lot about what happened on the ground, like how regular people were affected by these big social and political changes. I don't think I've come across anything on the Highland clearances before. So I I am actually, despite your lecture, I am really interested. Good. And can I just say, I think one of the great things about Davies is she's interested in exploring these lesser known moments in history. So let me tell you a little bit more about Clear and see if this is something that interests you. So it starts with John Ferguson, who is a middle-aged, impoverished cleric, I suppose. He lives in a manse. He's kind of like a Scottish vicar. And he's just accepted a contract from one of these landowners to travel to a very remote island in the North Sea between Shetland and Norway. Apparently this island doesn't exist, but that's the kind of general location. And he's being sent there to evict a farmer called Ivor, who is the island's last remaining tenant. 
So John is leaving behind his wife Mary in Aberdeen to go and do this and she thinks her husband is quite unworldly and a bit naive. But he assures her he'll only be gone for a month and that with this contract they'll make more money than they do in a year. And he's kind of starting out as a, a priest, they need the money. So John leaves Mary and heads off. But as I'm sure you can guess, things don't go to plan. And on his second day on the island, which is this hugely treacherous, rocky outpost, it's like something from Lord of the Rings. Something happens to him and either not knowing who he is or why he's there, finds him and takes him back to his bothy, his like little stone cottage, and sets about caring for this mystery visitor, this mystery man. And the book goes from there. And it charts the growing relationship between Ivor and John, who initially don't even speak the same language and who come from completely different worlds, but who find a way to coexist. It's just an incredible book. And we've talked about books that look at language. Language runs all the way through this book as a major theme. They don't speak each other's languages, John and Ivor, but they gradually learn. And as John learns Ivor's dialect, and you're never really told what it is, he begins to find words to describe things on the island that he didn't know how to describe before. It's kind of like, you know, Eskimos have 30 words for snow. Yes. In Ivor's language, there are 30 words for the ripples on the surface of a lake or a storm coming into the island. It's just so beautifully written. And I have to say, I don't often ugly cry when reading a book, but this was such an emotional gut punch, especially the ending, which is so understated and which both broke my heart and restored my faith in human kindness at the same time. I cannot recommend this book enough. That sounds incredible. I am very interested in that book. I feel like I've done the hard sell, but this book did a number on me. Saf, what's your first pick? Okay, so my first pick is The Extinction of Irina Ray by Jennifer Croft. Can I say, straight off the bat, when I saw that you had listed this book in our show notes, mm -hmm. I read it as The Extinction of Lana Del Rey. Get out of here. Which I thought was quite postmodern, but also a bit harsh. Like, her albums aren't that bad. You're fired. <laughs> Tell me about the book. Anyway, okay, The Extinction of Irina Ray. Now, Jennifer Croft, I don't know what you know about her, but she's a bit of a powerhouse. I don't know anything about her. She won a Guggenheim Fellowship for the extinction of Irina Ray, and her debut, Homesick, was longlisted for the Women's Prize. Oh, I've heard about this book. Mm -hmm. Her translation of Nobel laureate Olga Tokachuk, Flights, also won the International Booker Prize. She also did Olga's The Book of Jacob, which was published by Fitzcarraldo in the UK. She's received the American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Literature. Essentially, she's done loads of incredible stuff and, and is being recognised. She's a it. renaissance woman. And I love the fact that you're on first name basis with Olga Tokachuk. Yeah, we're, uh, we're best friends. Okay, cool. Cut me in on that deal, yeah? Yeah. Okay, the last thing I want to mention before I talk about the actual book is Jennifer's feelings on translation and translators because I, th I think it's important oh, to We've mention. talked about this quite a lot, haven't we? Mm -hmm. So Jennifer's feelings on translators being credited for their work on book covers is, is quite strong. And I quote, I'm not translating any more books without my name on the cover. Not only is it disrespectful to me, but it's also a disservice to the reader who should know who chose the words they're going to read. Yes. End quote. Yes, queen. Right? You're effectively rewriting the book as a translator. I know lots of literary translators and they have to have such a nuanced feel for the structure and, and many of them are fiction and non-fiction writers themselves. Yeah, I back her completely on this. Yeah. Okay, right, the book. So this book centres around eight translators from all around the globe who arrive in a small village in a forest in Poland to translate the latest novel of renowned and mysterious author Irina Ray. 
whom the translators just refer to as our author. After their first night and some odd behaviour from the author, she vanishes and the eight translators are left to search for her and perhaps find meaning in her disappearance. I'm hooked. It's a mystery novel, but it's also an ode to words and their meanings. I suppose even the art of translation itself, which is an incredible skill. The book questions what a translator's role is, whilst the plot itself is a kind of confusing and exciting puzzle. Did our author disappear on purpose? Did something bad happen to her? Are the translators supposed to pick meaning from it and translate her latest novel without her? I do think the book also questions what it means to know someone you really admire. What does it take to to truly understand them? Can you really understand a person based just on what they've shared with the press or, you know, all the information that can be found about an author, for example, in a public space? The eight translators are almost obsessed with the author, but to varying degrees. It's like they're almost laying claim to her in Mm, some way. mm. Some parts in the book, I did feel like some of them even wanted to kind of consume her, but that they still wouldn't feel sated. They wouldn't feel like they they were close to her afterwards. So this is like when translation goes bad and blurs into cannibalism. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't happen in the book, but yeah, there's this this feeling of like claustrophobicness, if that's a word. Well, I guess if you're living with an author day in, day out, and you're obsessed enough to like trek into a Polish forest to look for her, you're probably going to want a piece of her. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I mean, the the writing in this novel is exquisite. The use of words and wordplay was really fascinating. I don't think my vocabulary is particularly small. I think I'm quite well read and I read often. But even I was was having to stop and look up the meaning of some of the words that were used. Oh, I quite like that with a book, though. I went in expecting Olga Tokachuk vibes. I think perhaps because Jennifer Croft was the translator for the Book of Jacob and Flights. And because Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead is still one of my favourite, favourite, favourite books ever. Yeah, it's great. And and the setting in the Polish countryside I found to be beautiful and hypnotising in both of these books. You know, I went in in advance thinking I might get similar feelings. Well, you had me at Tolgachuk. I love her writing, so that's 100% definitely a hook for me. In fact, I was just reminded of something Tolgachuk said about her novel Flights, which is possibly one of my favourites, which was that she called it a constellation book, like a book of many characters and many different voices. And I think she's got a particular talent for bringing those voices together. And I'm just wondering, because you're talking about eight different translators, how well does Jennifer Croft separate out the voices and the personalities of the different translators? Because I think it's quite a skill to write a book with a big cast of characters and have them all be convincing. We don't get a huge amount of all of the characters. Like I'd say they're pretty well fleshed out in that they have whole personalities and they're believable as people. But we remain with just one of the translators as our main point of view throughout the book. So we're very much influenced by our narrator's thoughts and feelings around the other seven translators. Mm. We're kind of seeing them through her eyes and some she likes more than others, Mm. some she actively dislikes, some she kind of ignores quite a bit. And so you get less of that character. Okay. When you were reading that description, I was getting Jeff Vandermeer vibes. You know, his book Annihilation, that kind of band of soldiers and doctors go into Mm. like an unknown zone it's like a forest territory to try and discover something or i think they're rescuing someone is this sci-fi is this gothic is this what is this i mean that's a good question i definitely think there's similarities especially that sense of of weirdness that you kind of get from his books where you don't always know what's going on even if you are reading it word for word and, and concentrating you still can be like what is happening here 
I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say it was sci-fi though. I, th- I think it is literary fiction. It's hard to say. It's a confusing book. I'm going to read it. I'm absolutely going to read it. It sounds right on my street. Okay, now that we've talked about two books that we've read and, and highly recommend that come out in March, Joseph, do you want to tell us about the two books that you're excited to read? Yeah, I've got two non-fiction releases. I've gone rogue. Gone I AWOL. like it. Okay, yeah. t- tell me about one. Okay, so the first book, which I'm looking forward to reading when it comes out on the 7th of March is, and it has a great title, Who Owns the Moon? In Defence of Humanity's Common Interests in Space by A.C. Grayling. And this is published by One World Publications in the UK. So Grayling, in case you don't know him, is a philosopher. He's written, I think, over 30 books or something like that. Many different subjects. So not just philosophy, but also biography, politics, human rights, the history of ideas. And now he's turned his attention to the moon. And I have to admit, before I saw the title of this book, I had never thought about the moon in this way. Had you? No. I mean, it's kind of just there, isn't it? And I thought we'd we'd all agreed that it didn't really belong to anyone, but apparently that's not the case. I never would have considered that it could be somebody's to own. So he seems to be especially interested in the concept of terra nullius, which roughly translates from the Latin as territory without a master. So these are all the places that no one, and therefore everyone, owns. And this isn't just the moon, but also common feudal land, sections of the sea, parts of Antarctica. And his concern, it seems, is that this land that no one rightly has a claim over, and which should just be common land, has, through a lack of legislation, and I guess a lack of us talking to each other, a lack of international consensus on the subject, been left open to exploitation. And I think there he's pointing the finger at Elon Musk. A handful of billionaires, basically, and global corporations Mm -hmm. who are eyeing up these places thinking, ooh, they've got lots of natural resources we can exploit, like silicon and manganese and all the things you put in your mobile phone. That's crazy, isn't it? I can't... Yeah, I'm I'm almost lost for words because I honestly have just never considered this concept. But you're right, there are... Well, there's the moon, the kind of unexplored areas of the sea. Like, there's there are lots of parts of our world that should be common land and and shouldn't even be accessible to just a handful of people to just do what they like with. We need to sign the petition. Let's do it. Do you want to hear something really crazy about the moon? Yes, even crazier, but go for it. Even crazier, I think. Reading around this subject, I discovered some bizarre things. So there's an American businessman called Dennis Hope who has been selling plots on the moon for a couple of decades. And I'm laughing because this is so bizarre. And even more bizarrely, in 1996, a German citizen named Martin Jürgen, I'm going to name and shame him, he's out there, he declared that the moon belonged to his family and that it had been presented to his ancestors in 1756 by Prussian King Frederick the Great as a gift of service. I mean, I don't know what they did to get the moon, but they got it. I mean, obviously, these claims don't get very far in the courts, but it's an interesting conundrum nonetheless. And I guess it's one that Grayling expands upon, this idea of ownership. That's really interesting. And uh, yeah, that did make me chuckle, just imagining some guy being like, oh, did I, did I never tell you? Oh, yeah, that thing up there. Yeah, that's actually mine. It's, su- <laughs> it's such a fake it to you make it flex, isn't and it? And also, this guy selling plots on the moon, what is he doing? Just being like... Oh, want to build a new house? Like, fancy a change? Like, well, I kind of feel like if you're in London, you're waiting at least 30 years on a local authority list for an allotment. Maybe you should just buy a plot on the moon and grow, I don't know, tinfoil? It's a long commute, though, isn't it? It is a long commute. Well, we're all working from home nowadays anyway. I'm looking forward to reading this book. I've enjoyed some of Grayling's popular philosophy books in the past, and I've got some, actually, I want to lend you. And I'm interested, I'm interested to see, basically, how he manages this subject. 
and whether it has any solutions. Yeah, I think I'm going to wait until you've read it. And then if you come through with really positive reviews, then I'm going to borrow it from you. I mean, it's quite a slim book. But well, yeah, okay, go. fine. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so the second nonfiction release I'm keen to read is The Rising Down, Lives in a Sussex Landscape by Alexandra Harris, which comes out a bit later in the month on the 21st and is published by Faber in the UK. Have you heard of this one? No, I, I've, I've not heard of the author or the title. Okay, so this one, it, it looks like a curious blend of memoir, history and na- nature writing from what, I, what I've read about the book. And it kind of reminds me of another title, and I think you've had this in your shop, that it came out a few years ago, which I really enjoyed, and that was called Shadowlands, A Journey Through Lost Britain by Matthew Green, who I've met, actually. It's very nice. Yeah, is that the one... I don't know if it's got a teal cover or a purple, like a movie cover. I can't remember, but I think I know the book that you're talking about. It's in the paperback and I think the hardback. It was kind of like a, I'm going to say a Chinese white and, yeah, teal. Mm, yeah. So that was a book. It kind of had a similar mix of genres and it focused on Green's travels across Britain as he looked at all of the kind of history behind all of our lost towns. And it was quite a startling read, actually, because I hadn't realised that there were all these like large towns and even cities which had been big centres of trade and culture in their day, but had pretty much disappeared from the map. So anyway, if that sounds interesting, I definitely recommend Green's book. So Harris's new book, she doesn't cover the whole of the UK. She stays in one place, or at least one county, and she's looking at the hidden, or I should say relatively unknown history of West Sussex, which is in fact where she grew up. Me too. Just a fun fact for you. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I'm from West Sussex. Big up Crawley. <laughs> I don't think she's going to be talking about Crawley. That's, that's a shame. I'm out. <laughs> she's, a, she's a very high-class writer. In fact, she's an art historian and cultural critic by training, so I am expecting this book to focus quite heavily on stories relating to artists and writers. So she mentions people like John Constable, Ford Maddox Ford, who did The Good Soldier, and William Blake, quite prominently on the blurb. But I've also read that she's done quite a lot of archival and local history research in prep for writing this book. As an archivist, I'm always pleased to hear that. I'm hoping that follows through, and she'll also be talking about the lives of lesser-known people, hopefully lesser known but no less exciting, kind of regular people who have lived in Sussex over the years. I wonder if I'll be in there. Your formative years in Crawley. I'd read it just for that. She should put that on the blurb. My last thing I want to say about this book is I love a good endorsement. Sometimes they backfire. It feels like the person hasn't actually read the book. Mm. But I was looking at the blurb and the nature writer, Richard Maybe, whose work I love, has given this book a ringing endorsement. And he likens reading it to a thrill akin to discovering buried treasure, which I just thought sounded really lovely. Yeah, it's a lovely endorsement, isn't it? It is. Hopefully we'll get endorsements like that. Fingers crossed. Saf, what are your other two picks? You've gone for fiction this time around, right? Yeah, so I've gone for two more fiction books. Interestingly, or to me at least, for the first six months of last year, I read an equal split of fiction and non-fiction without particularly meaning to. I'm not tracking anything this year as I just didn't fancy doing it, but I'm pretty sure it's about an 80-20 split to fiction so far. So I'm definitely leaning way more towards fiction this year. I think I'm the same. And I, especially at this time of year, I quite like good stories. So fiction is very attractive. But listeners, if you have any really stellar non-fiction recommendations, email us. Yes, 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 please. Anyway, so one of the two books which I was kindly sent a proof copy of is Mona of the Manor by Armistead Morpin. I've heard of him. 
So this publishes on the 7th of March by Penguin, and it's the 10th novel in the much-loved Tales of the City series, Armistead's best-selling San Francisco saga, which is probably why you've heard of. And can I just say, I feel ashamed that I haven't read any of these and I should have my LGBT credentials removed. I mean, I haven't either, so... Um, So Tales of the City began as a column in the San Francisco Chronicle in the 1970s and it was seen as pretty modern for the time in terms of its contents and its characters. As for many readers, this was the first time they had any exposure to straight and gay characters living and experiencing life with a sense of equilibrium and being on a kind of equal footing. It's often been described as a glittering comedy, which I think is to say that it's funny, it's human and it's warm. Yeah, that's how I would define a glittering comedy. Perfect. Great. So Mona of the Manor specifically follows middle-aged Mona and her adopted son, Wilfred as they meander around her romantic manor in the English countryside. <laughs> there was a lot of M's and R's in that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> they open what I'm picturing to be kind of like big iron classical gates to let in paying guests, a B&B of sorts. There are mishaps and moments of humour in the lead-up to the historic Midsummer Ceremony. So I've yet to read this one, but I am envisioning a cosy read, something that I can curl up with a cup of tea. It feels almost romantic to me with the English manor. I'm picturing leaking guest rooms and a temperamental heating system, crumbling walls, large amounts of wisteria, that kind of thing. Sounds like my house in Ramsgate. (laughs) Um, Okay, I've got a question for you. I've Mm -hmm. not read any Armistead Maupin. Obviously, I'm a bad gay. (laughs) This is number 10, right? So are these books that need to be read in order or could I just pick up the sixth in the series and be able to know what's going on? Could I read this one basically and not feel like I was missing out too much? Yes. So they are all standalone stories. So you could pick up a later book in the series and you'd be able to read and enjoy it without feeling like you're lacking key bits of information in the plot or the character backstories. Yeah. However, they do exist almost in real time as in the era they were published in is reflective in the stories. And I believe that characters do reappear from time to time. So I'd say for the ultimate experience, you'd want to read them in order from start to finish. But there's not like a big thing at the beginning where they all find an asteroid and extraterrestrial life gives them like, you know... No, I think it's like occasionally a character might foreshadow a future event and then you notice that that appears again a few books later. Okay. And it does happen or, or things like that. You can read them alone. But... I, could, I could just read backwards anyway, couldn't I? Sure. Yeah, okay, thanks for that. If you want to. The last thing I wanted to say on this series is Penguin have created new covers for all of the 10 books in the saga and they are very, very beautiful. They've used a really bold, dare I say cool, (laughs) font over colour-drenched retro images. So there's lots of like bright baby pink as the sun sets over a cityscape and then there's like pastel blue skies with a vintage car. I don't know I'm doing it justice, but they're really beautiful. No, I always love your cover commentary. They're really, really nice. And I I kind of want the whole collection just because I think they'd look really beautiful displayed. But this is what they're doing. It's like when they released Murakami with all those beautiful hardback covers. Yeah, I mean, they know what they're doing, don't they? They're playing you. But you can also pick up secondhand copies with the older and the original covers online at places such as World of Books for just a couple of pounds, or you could probably potentially stumble across them in in some good secondhand bookshops. So there are options there. It's accessible. Okay, my interest is peaked. I'm going to go and pick up the first book, I think, and work my way up to this one. Do you know, I was really put off by the TV series about yeah, Tales I think City just ignore... with Elliot Page and other actors. I just thought it was a bit rubbish. Yeah, okay, it... I'm going to ignore the TV. Ignore the TV. You know that's always my advice. Yeah. Just focus on the book. I don't even know why I'm asking you this question. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, what's your last pick? Okay, so I have picked Stoneyard Devotional by Charlotte Wood. I have seen a lot of PR about this on Bookstagram, but mm. I don't know anything mm-hmm. about it. So it comes out on the 7th of March, and I'm just really intrigued by it. Charlotte Wood's an Australian author, and this is her 10th book, so she's pretty far into her career. The novel, as far as I can tell, it follows a woman who, after leaving her marriage, flees her city life for her childhood home, which is a small remote place in the Australian outback. Mm. Whilst she's kind of busy ruminating on her childhood memories, which are all brought back to her upon returning to this very religious community, some strange things start to happen. So one, there's a plague of mice. Okay. Two, a woman who disappeared decades before and whom the community presumed had been murdered reappears, or at least her skeletal remains do. I mean, I've had that happen to me, but continue. (laughs) And three, a troubling visitor arrives at the town's monastery. So to me, it sounds creepy. So you've got like the plague of mice and the skeletal remains, which fully are up my street. I'm very curious about what the plague of mice will be like. I've not heard of a plague of mice before. No, like, is it going to make a dent in anything? I mean, mice are quite small. How many mice are we talking about? Yeah, and and you get, like, plague of rats. Like, I think of, like, The Plague by Albert Camus. Yep. That features lots of rats. But not mice. Mice are quite cute. But then a plague sounds terrifying. I love the fact that we've hyper-focused on this plague of mice. Well, that's what really caught me. But, okay, but anyway, overall, I'm predicting the book is going to be creepy, perhaps confusing, but with lots of memories weaved into the current-day happenings. It sounds really interesting, and I'm, I'm there for the gothic vibes and the plagues. Yeah, me too. This book is definitely going on my TBR pile, hopefully somewhere near the top. Amazing. Thank you for those two fiction recommendations. Well, three, actually. Okay, so now I think we're at that part of the show where we try to help one of our listeners find their next must-read book. Are we ready? We are ready. Our request today comes from Mike. Hi, Noble Thoughts. It's Mike here from Maidstone in Kent. I was looking for a book recommendation from you guys. Typically, I read crime and sort of cosy crime. I enjoy authors like Janice Hallett. I've read the the Thursday Murder Club series from Richard Osman as well. And most recently, just come off the back of reading a few different Lisa Jewell books. My most recent read was a bit different, actually. It was a funny, wholesome, sort of heartwarming book called Frank and Red by Matt Coyne. And I sort of want to maybe branch out and look down that avenue. So I wonder if you guys have any recommendations for someone who's looking for something a little bit different, but sort of still heartwarming and, and funny. Or if not, just some, some out-of-the-box cosy crime or, or crime books. Thanks, guys. A good request today, Joseph. A very good request. What are you Thank thinking? Thank you. I'm going to recommend... Well, okay, if we're going for heartwarming, I'm going to recommend Things Can Only Get Better. Things Can Only Get... By David M. Barnett, which came out back in 2019 and is published by Trapeze in the UK. So it's a small press if you're looking for it. I haven't read Frank and Red, but as soon as I looked up the synopsis, I knew this book, Things Can Only Get Better, might be a good follow-up. So the lead character is a grumpy church warden called Arthur who has lost his wife and he visits her every day in the graveyard for a chat. It's very moving. Anyway, one day he sees that someone else has been visiting his wife and has left flowers on her grave. And he sets out to find out who is this mystery person. And in an unlikely turn of events, he's helped along the way to solve the mystery by a group of teenage girls. And I would say if you want a heartwarming read without the schmaltz, this is definitely a good place to start. The book is set in the 90s, and obviously I've referenced the D-Ream song in the title. It's funny, it's moving, and if you like this, you might want to check out Barnett's previous book called Calling Major Tom, which is just as good and is in a similar genre. Saf, what are you going to recommend? 
I think I've said this before, but I really don't read much that falls into the heartwarming category. But like you, Mike, I do want to read more of it. I'm going to suggest Skippy Dies by Paul Murray. So despite the sad sounding title, this book gave me all of the feelings and it made me laugh too. So I think it fits the bill. It's brilliantly written and it follows the life and death of Skippy and those around him at Seabrook College for Boys. So there's first loves, there's string theory, there's relationship breakdowns, there's thrisby throwing. This book has such a peculiar mix of topics, but don't let that put you off. This, I think, would be a perfect read for you to exactly what you're after. I'd also recommend Frederick Backman. And I'd start with Anxious People and go from there and you can read his whole backlist. He's very good. And can I just jump in and say, Mm. if we're looking for cosy crime recommendations, I just want to give a shout out to Richard Coles, who did the Murder Before Even song and a Death in the Parish books. If you haven't read those before, Mike, you might enjoy them. Nice. Hopefully, Mike, there's some some inspiration for you there. Okay, so that's just about the end of the show. Next week, we will be talking about books without men. Oh, yes, we will be discussing the Bechdel test and books that pass it. Plus, dishing out some great recommendations to more of our lovely listeners. As always, links to everything we've been talking about today will be in the show notes. Please feel free to like and subscribe to the pod. Tell a friend or leave us a review. It all helps. If you're looking for your next great read and you'd like to be part of the show, send us your recommendation request to ntpramsgate at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at novelthoughts underscore pod. Bye. Bye.